The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. As we turn now to the scriptures, I'd like to invite you to turn in the New Testament to the book of Romans, the book of Romans in the New Testament, Romans 3, it's on page 940. Uh, we, we are in our second week of a summer series called Hard Questions, in which we are jumping around to various places. Uh, this morning we find ourselves in the book of Romans as we ask the question, can someone be good without God? Can someone be good without God? So turn to Romans, Romans 3. And we'll be reading specifically Romans 3, verses 9 through 20 as we seek to find uh, an answer in the Scriptures to, to this very question. So, if you've got your Bible, uh, we'll read the text uh, first before we launch too much further into the content this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures this morning. Great God, we know that You speak to us in Your Word. We know Your Word is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. Uh, which pierces to our thoughts and our intentions and reveals what is true about us. We know, Lord, Your Word is also that measuring rod by which You measure all truth because You are the God of truth, for You are the Creator of it. So, Father, as we turn now to the Scriptures, we pray that Your Holy Spirit might give us the illumination of mind and heart to both believe and receive with faith that which You speak to us And Lord, give us grace to live in accord with it as we trust in You by Your Word. Bless now the reading and hearing and preaching of Your Word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this is the Word of God, Romans 3, as Paul is summarizing the first three chapters of Romans here now at our particular text. Romans 3 at verse 9, hear now the Word of God. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. With the Word of God abides forever. Uh, Keep your Bible open there. And we'll be coming back to that Romans text. But uh, we come to this text this morning uh, by way of the question, can someone be good without God? And let me say here at the beginning that I really want to encourage you that as we ask that question and you put yourself in the position of the questioner, that this should not be a hypothetical someone. But the someone that you're asking, can this person be good without God, is perhaps your friend, your neighbor, 
your coworker, a family member who is a genuinely wonderful person in every respect, we would simply say perhaps is morally upstanding. Maybe even you would say better than me, better than me, but rejects the scriptures, rejects the gospel, and as a consequence, the Lord Jesus. How do we think about that person's morality before God and that person? Can they be good without God? So that's, that's what we're thinking about. And I hope you understand why that is a hard question. Because as we are evaluating morality and goodness and standing before God, we are oftentimes challenged when we see our friends, neighbors, co-workers who don't share our faith, but who are otherwise wonderful people, and it creates a real tension in our hearts when we ask the question, is it going to be the case that God will not accept that person, wonderful though they are, interacting in that tension? Well, as we think about this question about goodness, we have to ask before we get very far at all into answering the question about what we mean when we say good. Can someone be good without God? But what does it mean to be good? You, know, you and I, we would use this term, and our culture uses the term in a very broad sense. What does good mean? And let me, let me acknowledge and even concede on the front end, if good means and only means, if good only means simply displaying moral behavior and adhering to societal norms, then yes, anybody can exhibit goodness, meaning the unbelieving non-Christian person can be virtuous, show kindness, be compassionate, help you cross the street and get your cat out of a tree. It doesn't take Christian faith to do those things externally. But as we dive deeper in the evaluation of what this whole goodness means, we should acknowledge that if there is such a thing called good, then it stands to reason that there is such a thing then called bad. And that there is a relationship and a definition between the good and the bad. And the question comes, who gets to say what's good or not? Who gets to say what's bad or not? And uh, largely, history and societies have found at least three different ways of explaining this issue. Who gets to say what's good? And who gets to say what's good or not or what this means? How do we make sense of what it means when we say good? Like I said, three options. And your first option is, I think the most obvious one, is what we understand to be theism. Christian theism, the belief in God. Theism means that goodness and morality is grounded in the nature and the character of God who is good Himself and who reveals by His own divine standards what is good and what is bad, what is righteous and what is unrighteous, what is upright and what is immoral. So, I'm going to use the same illustration for each one of these three options. On the island of theistic morality, I don't know what ocean the island of theistic morality is in, let's call it the Indian Ocean. In the middle of the Indian Ocean is the island of theistic morality. And on the island of theistic morality, it is taken as divine law that it is right not to steal because God says so. And so those who do not steal obey God's divine law, and those who do steal violate the divine standard of theism. That's one option. There is also the option of how you explain what is good or not by secularism. 
In secularism, morality is a human construct that arises from social or cultural or evolutionary factors. And in this view, morality is not dependent on some kind of external uh, divine source, but rather uh, shaped by human reason, empathy, and social norms. Meaning, if someone is immoral, it's because they lack proper education and social conditioning. So again... In the middle of the Indian Ocean, if there is the island of secular moralism, then that society is governed by the fact that over the years of living together, this society has determined that people get along better if they don't steal from each other. People get along better if they don't steal from each other, and so it becomes social norm and social convention not to do it, because when people steal, it's disruptive, it's bad for the society, so they don't do it, but the norm of what is good or not is totally culturally conditioned by society itself. That's secularism. The world and the culture and the people get to say. So theism, God says. Secularism, the culture says, determinative of time and history. And the third option is... Maybe you can guess relativism. Theism, secularism, and relativism. Relativism is totally subjective and varies across individuals, cultures, and historic periods. In relativism, there is no such thing as absolute good and absolute bad. It's totally subjective. It's totally relativistic. So, in the middle of the Indian Ocean, on the island of relativistic morality, it's good even virtuous, to steal your friend's wallet because you want to. And it doesn't matter that they think it's bad. It's good for you to steal their wallet, so it's fine. And they say, well, that offends me and my property. And the response is, it doesn't matter. Because it doesn't matter. Because it's all relative. Chaos ensues because there is no qualitative moral difference between the thief and the person who does not steal because it's all relative and doesn't matter anyway. Now, consequently, because for many people, softball is on their mind, you can't play softball on the island of moral relativism. You know why? Because umpires exist in the game. When there comes a play at home base, the runner is either safe or they're out. I don't know if they do reviews in even professional softball or not, but even if there is a review, at the end of the day, the runner is either out or the runner is safe. It's not relative. It can't be relative. Relativism doesn't make any sense whatsoever because when the runner says, to me, I'm safe, and the catcher says, to me, you're out, well, guess what? It doesn't matter because the umpire is going to make the call anyway, right? Relativism doesn't make any sense. So where does goodness come from? And who gets to say Theism says, God says, there is objectivity to the standard of morality. Secularism says, it's whatever one culture determines over another culture from various time, places, and history. And relativism says, it doesn't matter anyway, give me your wallet. So, when we're talking about the very notion of being good and where this comes from, the question of even asking about goodness is borrowing from the theistic or Christian worldview since there is a recognition of objective right and objective wrong. You can't even ask the question without acknowledging that there is a reality of good and bad. And so it's fascinating sometimes that perhaps as people ask us these very questions, that there are presuppositions that lie behind the questions that have stacked the deck with the admission that there is such a thing as good in the first place. Who gets to say? 
Well, it's not helpful if it's secularism because social and cultural norms will change. There will come a time and a place uh, when society will look back on their own past with such harsh criticism, just like we are living in right now, look to the past with each successive era that they are uh, exceptionally more enlightened than their forefathers who lived in the dark. And relativism says it doesn't matter anyway. So again, clearing the ground here, the very notion of someone insisting that there is such a thing as good in the first place is an inherent acceptance of theistic morality that says there is good, there is bad, and it is a reality. The very notion of someone insisting that they can be good while rejecting God is actually borrowed from God Himself. And so the question is inconsistent on the front end if it is asked by the non-Christian. As you might say, well, that was, that was kind of a strange introduction to all these things. Theism, secularism, relativism. But as we actually get to the text of Romans, what is Paul saying? I, I hope it's actually quite clear to us exactly how he would answer the question, but we have to be clear about what question we're even asking in the first place. What does it mean to be good? To be upright, moral? Again, all those things borrow from God Himself. And what Paul is saying in the book of Romans, specifically here at Romans 3, verse 9, is Romans 3, verse 9 is actually a summary statement of the entire book of Romans thus far. So, chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 8 is summarized in the one verse, chapter 3, verse 9, when Paul says, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Under sin. Where chapter 1 emphasizes the universal human problem of sin and the consequences of suppressing the knowledge of God, uh, Paul argues in Romans chapter 1 that there is actually no such thing as an unbeliever. Because everybody knows that God exists. The unbeliever is the one that is suppressing the knowledge of God. They know that it's true, but they actively suppress it. The illustration I always give, I'll give it every single time. It's like trying to submerge an inflated beach ball. You can work at it all you want, but it's always going to pop back up. It's always going to come up because you know that it's true. There is no such thing actually as an atheist because they know that God exists. They're just choosing to actively repress the knowledge that they have by way of their created order. We know that there is a God, but the problem is, is that we would prefer to be Him because if we acknowledge that there is a God, then we have to acknowledge that we're not Him and we must be subject to Him and naturally we don't want to be, so we repress, chapter 1 says. And then chapter 2 is arguing in the book of Romans that this is true regardless of culture. It's true regardless of heritage. Paul is saying it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Greek, and to that world, Jew, Greek, and barbarian is the whole encompass of all of society. There aren't people that don't fit in those categories. And so for Paul to say that both Jew and Greek is to say everybody. doesn't matter if you're from Asia or North America. It doesn't matter if you come from a Pacific island or a random island in the Indian Ocean that I just made up. Everybody. Everybody knows this regardless of their background. It's still true. So then, Paul says, we have already charged this, and he emphasizes there in verse 10, as it is written, 
He's going to quote now extensively from Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 14, Psalm 36, Isaiah 59. You see all these footnotes in the ESV text. Paul is uh, just absolutely heaping Old Testament text down to say, we know that this is true. That our sinful condition means that there is, in the words of verse 10, none. No, he says, not even one who is righteous. You could almost imagine if you were sitting down with the Apostle Paul who's, who's writing this under divine inspiration and you say, but, but Paul, wait, I do know this guy, he's super. I mean, he's just, he's the nicest guy. And Paul says, not him either. Yeah, but what about my cousin? My cousin has, you know, fill in this, this resume of morality that, that they might possess. And Paul says, no, not her either. When he says, no, not one. There is no one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. He is saying there in verse 10, the universality of the sinful condition of all humanity, regardless of cultural background or place in which they live, the sinful condition, no one is righteous. They demonstrate it there with their sinful speech in verses 13 and 14. Notice how he moves from the throat to the tongue to the lips. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. The venom is under their lips and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. They display it with what they say. And then in verses 15, 16, 17, they display it with what they do. Their sinful action. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths of ruin and misery and they don't know peace. Their sinful condition, the universality of the sinful condition manifests itself in both speech and action. And this summary there in verse 18 is because... There is no fear of God before their eyes. And what the Apostle is saying is that this is true of everyone without exception. Without exception. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, because when we talk about good, our language of good doesn't translate very well to what the Bible actually uses is the terminology of righteousness. Righteousness is that bar of standard that God has established that left to ourselves, no one is able to clear. Think of it like a track and field event, high jump. If God's righteousness is the bar of the high jump, there is no one that can clear the bar. Every attempt to clear it knocks the bar over, and by knocking the bar over is the willing admission of condemnation by that same standard. I have failed to clear the standard. No one can clear that standard on their own terms. So Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And Paul adds to this in Romans 14, verse 23, when he says, Everything apart from faith is sin. So let's back up, though, because, we, again, we want to acknowledge that it is possible for someone to perform externally moral acts that conform to what we call good. But if we were to peel back the motivations and the intentions of the heart, that even those external moral acts are motivated by a desire to be seen as moral, to be known as moral and to be approved as moral such that a person has made themselves their own idol to receive and gather praise to themselves. That even the externally moral acts of the unbeliever can be called into question by the internal motivations. So ultimately, to be clear, 
It does not matter how kind, how nice, how patient our unbeliever neighbor is. They cannot be righteous in God's sight and be accepted on that basis. And if we were to say that that's wrong, if we were to say, no, actually, my unbelieving neighbor who is a wonderful person but doesn't believe in Jesus, what would we be saying about that person is we would be granting that that person is the only person in the world that doesn't need a Savior. And that's just not an option that the Bible grants to anybody. Because everybody needs a Savior, as Paul says, because everybody is a sinner. And we know that this is true. And Christian believer, you should know that that is true because you know it about yourself. That we are not by nature good or righteous before God on our own account. Do you remember when Jesus says this, his first response to the rich young ruler in Luke 18, the rich young ruler comes to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And before Jesus even starts to answer the question, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, of course, Jesus is God. He's serving as an illustration in this sense to teach this person that no one is good in and of themselves. So what does this mean? Now, you've got, you've got options. When you are confronted with what the Bible says about a particular topic, especially when it's on a sensitive topic to which we have significant emotional investment, you have the option to say, well, either I will embrace that the Bible says that, or I will say to heck with the Bible and what it says about that. I don't want to believe that. But let me encourage you, if... If what the Bible says is true about morality and where it comes from and the fact of the matter is that regardless of external acts, no one can be good within themselves before God, it means that the fundamental thing that you should have for your unbelieving friend, neighbor, coworker, and family member is compassion and love, evangelistic concern, that they would come to know the truth that you have found in Jesus Christ that the goal of life is not to come to the end of it and amass a, a sufficient enough record that God would say and check your list and say, looks like you passed my bar, because you know it doesn't work that way. So that for those who think that it is possible that they would come to know what the gospel really says, that who think that their goodness is what gets them into heaven, the gospel doesn't work that way, and we know it. Listen to what Cornelius Van Til says about this. He's a, he's a 20th century Christian apologist, a Dutch Reformed teacher. He says this. He says, suppose we think of a man, a man who is made entirely of water, and that man made entirely of water exists at the bottom of a bottomless ocean of water. So the man made of water lives at the bottom of an infinite abyss of water and desiring to get out of the water, he constructs a ladder made of water and tries to climb out. So hopeless and senseless a picture is that, Cornelius Van Til says, that that is like the one who wants to be climbing to God to be accepted and approved by him on their own terms being made of water, living at the bottom of the ocean and climbing a ladder made of water, it just doesn't make any sense. And so the Bible says it doesn't make any sense to locate goodness and standing before God within ourselves. You know, this is why the gospel is true. 
Because morality, goodness, and righteousness only make sense when we look outside of ourselves. We define goodness by looking outside of ourselves to God's divine standards, who is good himself and who determines what goodness is. And we also know that by looking at that divine standard, we come to the conclusion that left to ourselves, we will not clear the bar. We know that about ourselves, and so we come to the same conclusion about all those who would seek to try to do so in their own strength. They can't do it, which is why the good news of the gospel is not that you can become so moral that you can be good without God, but rather that no one is so moral that they can be good without God, which is why God Himself has come in the person of Jesus, the only righteous man, to deliver those who come to the accurate conclusion that when the Apostle Paul says, none is righteous, no, not one, the Christian believer is, says, that's me. Left to myself, I am not righteous. Left to myself, I am not good. And so the good news of the Gospel is not that you ourselves are good, but that Jesus is good. And that by His grace and mercy, he redeems those who acknowledge their unrighteousness and are cleansed and given strength to live upright lives, not to be seen as good within themselves, but to give praise to the one who has forgiven their sins, who locate the source of their hope and peace and righteousness outside of themselves. So as you consider this, can someone be good without God? I would encourage you not to give your loved one a pass that the Bible doesn't give you, but rather to be filled with love and compassion so that those who do not know Jesus would come to hear the good news, not just that they are sinners, but that there is a Savior for sinners. If the Gospel is just you're a sinner, then that's bad news. But the good news is that the good news is much better than the bad news. <laughs> Infinitely better than the bad news that you are a sinner is the good news that there is a Savior for sinners. So believe it about yourself, first of all, and be convinced about it as it relates to your friends and neighbors such that we would have evangelistic concern for them. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You that You are righteous in and of Yourself. And that we who have fallen in Adam, who bear the marks of His original corruption and then live out the fruits of that corruption daily in our lives, might not be left to ourselves and in our sin, but rather be redeemed by a Savior. And so, Lord, because we, by the gift of faith through the Holy Spirit, have come to know this, we pray that You would help us also to see our friends, loved ones, and neighbors with mercy and with compassion and with a heart that is swelling for the hope of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Lord, bless Your people today with this truth and strengthen us in the hope of the Gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit Edgington 
epc.org. May God bless and keep you.